Thank you, Jim. Boy, if I had known, if I had forgot, I had actually forgot that that's what I was going to have to follow this morning. I might have prepared a completely different sermon. The depth, the profundity, the lingering smell, I just, you know, just really pretty hard. So anyway. Okay. I'm going to begin this morning's message with this. Message for you, son. That's my version of the beep. That's my version of the beep that all of us seem to have in some way or another in our lives these days. That particular sound you heard is what I hear when I get a text message or I get a voicemail on my cell phone. It alerts me anytime my phone is on and interrupts whatever I'm doing, even if I'm preaching. That's why I turn it down when I'm up here preaching. I don't want to be like uh, Jim Garrett, who that had that one time. When he, remember when he got up here, and right as he was getting up, his, his phone rang. His phone was in his pocket, and it rang. So, I have specific rings for some of my family. Barb's is this one. I give her all my love. That's all I do. <laughs> And if you saw my love, you'd love her too. I love her. <laughs> it's always good to get an awe out of the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anybody know that? Beatles, right? How many churches this morning in Tulsa are you going to hear Beatles, right? You're also not going to hear this in many other churches. This is the ringtone I have for my daughter, Lisa. Anybody know that song? Brown-Eyed Girl, right? Okay. Didn't know we were going to have a little music quiz this morning. And Laura's song is uh, this. Hello, it's me. <laughs> That's what I hear when Laura calls me on the phone, which doesn't happen very often, actually. Okay, I'm clearly a product of the 60s and 70s, fully and freely admit that. But we've heard all of these kinds of sounds, haven't we? Coming from people's phones, we've heard all kinds of sounds. We've heard sounds from the truly annoying. Just kind of sets your teeth on edge, doesn't it? And how many times have you had that happen in a restaurant where somebody next to you had something like that? And then we have some people that still are kind of old school. Right? I used to like to have a lot of fun with my computer sounds, and I collected through the years quite a wide variety of sounds that I would associate with Windows. And uh, actually, I don't do that anymore, and it's related to the sermon this morning. I've actually turned off all my uh, audible notifications on my computer because it's very distracting. That's one of the points of this morning's sermon. But here's another one that I used to use for mail notifications. What's this? A letter for me. One time I actually set up this sound to play on Debbie's computer, unaware to her, and this is what she heard when she did something on her computer. Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? <laughs> 
Uh, it's possible that between now and the end of this morning's sermon, someone's phone is going to ring. Or somebody's phone will alert them that they have a text message or, worse yet, a Facebook post. In fact, BASIC has a policy of the youth putting all their cell phones in a basket held by a wolf when they enter the room so they won't be distracted by their phones during the meeting. That was a policy instituted years ago when Jim Grinnell was still leading BASIC, and I think it's been reinstituted. Maybe we should get that wolf down here, huh, and with his basket on Sunday morning? What do you think? But all told, the truth is that the sound of our times is the message alert, isn't it? We hear message alerts all the time, just as the posture of our times is this. Don't we see this pretty much everywhere? Here we are, looking at our cell phones, punching away on our cell phones. That's the posture of our times. And since so many of us have so many of these sounds in our lives, some sort of a tone or a beep or a message alert, I sometimes think that we're people of the beep. But here's the question this morning. Should we be? Is it all good? Are there things about our digital age, are there things about really any kind of technology that should cause us to pause and to think clearly and critically about what these technologies mean in our lives, what they do to our lives as believers. Even if there are good things that these technologies bring, does that mean that they're always good, always all good? Or are they even always all neutral? Are they only subject to whether or not we use these technologies for good or ill? Is it just possible that any technology we can think of has the potential to cause intended problems in our lives, to change something about the way we live in a negative way? Those are the kind of questions I want to explore this morning, and this morning is not going to be a typical TCF sermon. You probably already got that. We're not going to exegete passages of Scripture this morning, or we're going to ask a few more questions than we're going to try to answer this morning. But I do believe that the questions we're asking this morning and the answers we may suggest are, in fact, informed by Scripture, shaped by our understanding of Scripture. And consequently, I think they're worth exploring this morning together for our spiritual well-being. Certainly, technology improves our lives in a lot of different ways, doesn't it? We don't tend to think of toilets, for example, as technology. But a few weeks ago, I watched a program on the History Channel exploring the history of bathroom technology. And let me tell you, flush toilets are definitely an improvement over the ways people have throughout history dealt with the issue of what do we do with the stuff that now gets very easily flushed down our commodes. That's the most delicate way I can think of to say that. And bathroom is definitely a plus in our lives. Also, I'm not at all unaware of the irony of preaching this message this morning using the digital technology that I'm using. And I've used in these past few weeks to prepare and now to bring you this word this morning. For First of all, many of the ideas that I'm presenting this morning are from a really good book. It's a Kindle book, actually, and it's called The Next Story, and it's by a writer named Tim Challies. I read the book on a digital device of one sort of another, or one sort or another. In fact, when I'm reading an electronic book, as opposed to a printed hard copy of the book, and when I'm reading it to prepare a sermon... One of the things I do is I read the book on different devices sometimes. I read it on my first-generation Kindle Fire. That's what this is. 
which is my primary reading device. I read most of my e-books on that. But when I have a few minutes that I'm waiting for someone or something, I always have my smartphone with me. And since Kindle allows you to actually synchronize your bookmarks across any device that you read on, for example, I finished page 25 one night as I went to bed, and the next morning I'm waiting on somebody for a breakfast appointment or next lunch appointment to show up, I can open up the Kindle app on my phone, and it will ask me if I want to go to the page that I read last night, and even tells me on which device I read that page and when I last synchronized it to that page. What's more, I can use any of my reading devices to highlight certain passages. I do that, and I do it quite often, especially when I'm preparing uh, the sermon text for any given Sunday. I can go to the Kindle software on my laptop computer, and I can copy and paste the notes from the, whatever device that I read that on into a PowerPoint from the passages that I highlighted on my Kindle Fire or on my phone. So my point is these are handy and functional tools. Use them. I love technology. I always have. My dad sold home electronics. He was in the home entertainment business. And my college degrees in radio and TV, and that's an industry that relies on technologies. I've always loved it, and this is very deeply rooted in me. So I tell you these details only because I don't want you to think that I'm anti-technology in any way. I love gadgets. And you know what? The truth is, I would always have the latest and greatest and coolest stuff that there was if I could afford it. I'd have it the minute it was available, if I can justify the expenditure. Unfortunately, most of the time I can't do either, so I have to wait until the prices come down. And that's another cool thing about technology. It's one of the few sectors of our economy where the prices actually come down over time. This is fun. It's interesting to me. And as I've explained, I think it genuinely helps my work. In that sense, I'm very thankful for technology. God has gifted human beings with remarkable ability to dream, create, and invent technologies that serve us as we serve him, technologies that enable us to better serve him. So it's true, folks, in a very, very real sense, technology can be and often is God's good gift to us. But sadly, we live in a fallen world, don't we? And even though there are things that have more of an upside than downside, we have to remember that almost anything can be used for sinful purposes. And if not for just sinful purposes, they can still bring a threat in some way or another to our faith. Because you know what? The enemy of our souls is always prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And he will use seemingly innocent, harmless, uh, helpful things to do it. So specifically, I want to explore briefly this morning three thoughts about modern technology. Now, this could have been a two-part message easily because there was so much material, but I, I, I narrowed it down to three. We need to think critically and biblically about these things for our own spiritual well-being. Folks, we need to discern. Scripture is constantly encouraging us to discern. We read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We need a little bit of self-awareness too. We need maybe even brutal honesty about ourselves. And I know that only the Holy Spirit can really bring that to us this morning. So I pray that even as we move along, if you feel a little bit picked on, you feel like Bill is up here stepping on your toes, you'll still allow the Lord 
to speak to you. First of all, digital technology can become an idol in our lives. Secondly, digital technology can distract us from what's really important, and it can negatively change the priorities in our lives. And finally, we need to ask the question, how does digital tech impact our relationships? Is it just possible that digital tech brings to our relationships things that are not always positive? We'll see as we move along that some of these thoughts and these questions that we have here are overlapping. They kind of relate one to another. So first we must think of idolatry. Of course, Scripture is also full of warnings against idolatry. We see just one here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And in our day and time, I don't know anybody who worships golden calves or statues or anything like that. Neil Postman, the late author and cultural critic, once wrote a book called Amusing Yourselves to Death, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he believed that over time, certain technologies can become what he called mythic. Now, by mythic, he doesn't mean stories like Lord of the Rings. In this case, he didn't mean it as in the sense of it being any, anything that was fictional or legendary. He meant mythic in the sense that these are things that seem to have always existed, as they do today. They're part of the natural order of life. So think about it for a second. You have to go back only 25 years or so to find a day when very few people owned a mobile phone. Today, most of us have a phone that's always with us, even in the pulpit. And we can't imagine our lives without it. This is definitely true of what we call digital natives. Okay? Now, that would include any of you who were born after about 1980. So think of it. If you fit into that category, you're a digital native. You've never really known a world without cell phones. But those of us who were born before 1980 are digital immigrants. We can remember the day when it wasn't normal to be able to reach someone anytime, anywhere. If you called someone, you called their work or their home, right? And if they weren't there, you either had to call them back, or if no one else answered, you have to leave a message with someone who might be there to answer, or maybe you can go back even before there were answer machines actual answer machines, not voicemail, right? But now, cell phones are mythic, aren't they? They're with us. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Everybody's got one. And it's hard for many people to imagine not having cell phones in their lives. And what becomes mythic is only one step removed from becoming idolatrous. The reformer John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. And isn't that true? So we can, we're talking about technology, but that can apply to all kinds of things this morning. We very easily create idols in our lives. Tim Keller writes that anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. Anything would certainly include your iPod, your iPad, your iPhone, or your Android device, wouldn't it? An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that captures your imagination more than God. Anything that you, seek, that, uh, that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything so central to your life that if you were to lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Anything that owns us rather than us owning it. 
when we become tools of our tools. That's idolatry. The problem isn't necessarily in the things themselves because uh, these things may be neutral or even good. But sometimes when these things, sometimes they're neutral, sometimes they're good, they're made into something that is ultimate in our lives. So this morning, again, it's going to take the Holy Spirit to awaken you to the idols in your lives. And, you know, maybe you're listening to me and think, you know, I'm good. These things don't really apply to me. Listen anyway, there's probably other idols in your lives. I pray your heart will be open and soft toward God and allow all of us to explore our own hearts in these areas. Recognizing the potential for digital idolatry in our devices may be a little bit harder for most of us because it takes self-awareness, it takes honesty about who we are, and we look at these things and we think they're good and how can they possibly be idols. However, the next easiest thing we can see is how our devices, as more and more of us see ourselves becoming tools of our tools, can be a distraction from what we are to see as the priorities in our lives. At least this is the easiest one for me to grasp. I first noticed this several years ago when I began to read widely on the Internet. Now, again, I love the technology of the Internet. Access now not just through my computer but through tablets and smartphones too. It's, it essentially gives me a library at my fingertips. I love that. I remember the early days when I had Internet access, dial-up through AOL. Remember that? <laughs> and you get the connection, right? You have mail. Well, I thought that was so cool even though it was painfully slow. It was something really exciting just thinking about the idea that I was accessing a computer halfway across the country or halfway around the world um, from a newspaper or a university library or something like that. So today I do read widely and it informs and it enhances everything I do. Actually it helps prime the sermon pump. I don't have trouble thinking of what to preach folks. I, I, it, with me, it's more of uh, I've got to pick and choose between a lot of good things, a lot of good ideas, and that's part of it. But several years ago, I came across an article, and ironically, this article was online. And it highlighted something that I'd begun to notice about myself. The writer of this article was an avid reader, like myself, and he pointed to a research study that he had come across. And this research study revealed how internet reading was changing the way that our brains consume information. It was literally making it harder to read longer form articles, in-depth articles, or books. Because of the composition of internet pages, think about those internet pages you've seen and what they look like. There's not just text on a screen 99% of the time, right? There's ads, there's hyperlinks on there to take you to someplace else. There's pop-ups sometimes of all kinds. The research showed that people were losing their ability to stick with a story. They were distracted. In fact, they were training their brains to read only bite-sized stories. This writer noted that he had for a long time been able to read dense, long books, even difficult or challenging to read books. His mind had been trained to do so by years of doing this. But as he explored the new realities of reading online, and he did more and more of it, he found his brain was changing. And when he tried to read a longer feature article online or a book that made him have to slow down and think a little bit, he finding more and more he wasn't able to do it. At least he wasn't able to do it as easily. It became more difficult to him. And this writer said he had kind of an aha moment. 
when he came across this research that explained what was happening to him and to others, the way their brains consumed information, and the ability to persevere through lengthy or more difficult material. It was being lost. And when I read this, I had a similar aha moment, and I realized it was happening to me too. So I made a decision. I decided I was going to be very intentional about changing my reading habits. I didn't want to lose the ability to read longer articles or full books. So now I'm always in a book. I've always got a book going, at least one, sometimes more. Before I had this aha moment, I had begun to read fewer books. For the first time in my life, there were short stretches when I wasn't. You know, you could catch me two, three, four weeks, and I wasn't in a book. I didn't have a book that I was working on. And I was getting almost all of my reading online. So I still read quite a bit online to this day. But I also intentionally read longer form articles and I read books. I try to find a balance here. Now, big deal, Bill. Why is this important? Why is this important to us as believers in Christ? Well, it's important because our devices can lead us to distraction. Hence, we have become people of the beat or whatever our message alert is. Whether it's changing how our brains consume information or just interrupting us when we're doing something else more important, our devices can be a distraction and they can alter our priorities. That's the problem. This in turn can impact our spiritual lives. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Paul wrote to the Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Setting our mind on things above, seeking the things that are above, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not the things that are on the earth. Smartphones are on earth, folks. I really doubt we're going to need smartphones in heaven. So again, there's nothing wrong with these tools in and of themselves, but it's our heart's attitude, folks, and it's our usage of these tools that for our own spiritual well-being, we need to at least question. Our brains actually change in response to new technologies. The brain of a person raised in the age of print, a person who learned from books and who read books in time of leisure or study, has a brain that's markedly different from a person who has learned primarily from images or who has watched videos. Our brains, scientists say, are basically kind of plastic. They're able to bend and shape themselves. Research shows us that the digital explosion has even changed the way the adult brain functions. It has placed many of us into what has been described as a state of continuous partial attention, a state in which we devote partial attention to many tasks simultaneously, most of them having to do with communication. While we sit at our desks working on a report, we are also monitoring our mobile phones and our instant messaging accounts, giving partial attention to a host of different media. And we do so, as we do so, we keep our brains in a constant state of heightened stress, damaging our ability to devote ourselves to extended periods of thoughtful reflection and contemplation. So think for a moment what this does to our reading and our study of Scripture or even our ability to sit through and really listen to a sermon, which, gee, it's too long, Bill. I can't stick with it. It's too long. We've all heard the adage that a picture is worth a thousand words, but you know what? It wasn't always this way. 
That's because images communicate in a way that is very different from words. The first impact of an image, think about this. The first impact of an image isn't a thought, it's a feeling, isn't it? Advertising in the 19th century described products using words. Now some ads today have very few words, if any, at all. I must have skipped past or through. Here, this is the problem with digital technology, folks. Now I'm really lost. Okay. Okay. I remember what it is. This is another problem with digital technology. When you finish a sermon and you have another idea and you want to insert more stuff and you don't change it on the desktop on the sound booth computer, you miss it. So I have a really cool picture. Imagine it in your minds, folks. A really cool picture of a, an, an a 1800s ad with mostly text and another really cool picture of a current ad with just a picture. So anyway, you're going to have to imagine that. And now I'm going to have to see where I, where I am now. Okay. All right. So some now ads have very few words at all. They use images to create a feeling or to bring an emotional response. So the human brain, hey, there we are processes images and words in completely different ways. The word is processed by the brain's left hemisphere, the area that deals with logic, sequences, and categories. The image is processed in the right hemisphere, the realm of intuition and holistic perception, not linear analysis. An image is processed in an instant, while words take time and sequence. So again, let's think about this for a minute. Why didn't Jesus come when there was video on the internet. Wouldn't that have been more efficient? Think of the emotional impact. huh? Rather than sharing words with a handful of disciples who would write his words down for us to preserve and speak to us down through the centuries after his ascension to heaven, we'd have this video on YouTube. Wow, have you seen that? Talk about a viral video. How about the one of the disciples uh, who had his smartphone at the Sermon on the Mount? and recorded that, or had his smartphone or a video camera at Jesus' ascension and recorded that and put it on YouTube, or how about his words on the cross, or one of his miracles? Hmm? Well, learning through images and visual media is directly opposed to learning by reading, which requires a more sustained focus and actually generates new skills and capacities in the brain. Here is one of the great dangers we face as Christians. With the ever-present distractions in our lives, we are quickly becoming a people of shallow thoughts, and shallow thoughts will lead to shallow living. I don't know about you folks, but I cannot, I will not, lose my ability to think deeply about things. Concentrated, focused thought that requires time and cannot be rushed. I don't want to be a shallow believer. And you might think, well, Bill, you're an elder and a preacher and a teacher, so of course you need that ability. But all of us need this, folks. All of us need this. All of us believers in Christ must retain the ability to study, to think deeply, to read challenging things, things that make us have to slow down and think about it. Studies have shown that websites turn readers into skimmers. Google wants and needs your experience of the Internet to be as wide and shallow as possible. Why is that? 
because they're about your eyeballs. They want your eyeballs to land on ads on this page and that page and that page and that page. Author Nicholas Carr observes, the last thing Google, the company, wants is to encourage leisurely reading or slow, concentrated thought. Google is quite literally in the business of distraction. That's because it's their business, and it is a business, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but how does it impact us as believers? So the ability to skim through material can be helpful. I know some people who took courses in speed reading long before the Internet existed, and it can be helpful, right? But it's no longer a means to an end. It's the dominant way people read and the primary way we gather and make sense of information. So if we get used to skimming, if we get used to quickly passing over texts, then we'll eventually do that in our Bible reading too. And that's something we can't do. We'll split it up into daily one-minute Bible readings. I guess we've already done that, haven't we? Which I guess is better than nothing, but it's not much. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture, folks, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is necessary. It's not profitable in isolation. We know the problem. We've talked about that from this pulpit, the problem of taking just one Bible verse and you make a theology about it and you don't really understand it because it's out of context, right? There's even a great little article I found once called Never Read a Bible Verse. Why is that? Because we're prone to error when we just read a Bible verse. Context is so important. We need all of Scripture. What's more, we can find a lot of information and knowledge on the Internet, but we can't find wisdom. We can't find wisdom. Google may be the source of all information. It's certainly a great source for lots of data, may even help us increase knowledge, but Google is not a source of wisdom. And you know what? We don't even have time to consider fully uh, another related idea. How about this? We are outsourcing our memory. Did you think about that? Why memorize Scripture when we can do a quick search online or on our digital devices? But there is a fundamentally organic nature in biological memory in the things that we store in our brains. It's a living memory. And so what do we do? As believers, we meditate, we memorize Scripture because it forces us to think deeply about what we're reading, about what we're memorizing, about what we're studying. And if, you know what? If there's anything that's worth thinking deeply about, it's the very Word of God. When we put it in our hearts, when we put it in our brains, it helps us as we seek to put it into our hearts for the purpose of impacting us for the purpose of penetrating our minds and our spirits. You know, there's so much more we could say about digital idolatry. And again, there's a lot more I could say about being distracted because we are people of the beep. We're ready to jump anytime our devices demand that we respond to them. We could talk about multitasking, for example. We won't, but we could talk about it and how research is very clear that none of us do it nearly as well as we think we might. We could talk about what it means to have digital devices be the actual mediator between us and all the information that's out there. Did you think about that? You know, what is a mediator? It's somebody that stands between. So you have this information on the one hand and you have you, and between that is the mediator. And our digital devices are the mediator between what's out there and how might this affect our understanding and even our perception of truth. 
In fact, again, as I was preparing these messages, these are some thoughts that I had to say, okay, don't really have time to adequately cover those. I could have explored quite a few more, and we'd be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon. But the last, and we won't, I promise, but the last and related theme that I want to explore as we close is how being people of the beep impacts our relationships. Now, we have to acknowledge that in some ways, used rightfully, rightly and thoughtfully, you can find many reasons that our digital world really enhances and improves our relationships. Now, when Dan and Mary Lou Covington, when Randy and Deanna Harrison, when Cindy Perry, when Millard and Shirley Parrish, when Warren and Shirley Norcom first went on the mission field, communication with them was a great challenge. There were letters, of course. They sometimes took literally weeks to get from overseas to us. There were very occasional phone calls, and they were problematic in terms of reliability and quality, depending on where our missionaries were. And they were also very expensive. We could not do a weekly missions moment like we do now without the digital age. Now I can get emailed prayer requests from halfway around the world, sometimes getting information literally in a matter of minutes or at least a few hours after requesting it. It would have taken days or weeks previously. We would have had to really be good planners to have a missions moment, and none of the things we have to present as prayer requests would have been nearly as timely as they are. Okay? I get pictures to show you. It's a great tool to communicate with our missionaries, to have up-to-date information for all of us to pray and feel truly connected to our missionaries. You know, I first got a Facebook account when some of our missionaries told me that I could get the most up-to-date pictures right off their Facebook page. And I said, okay, I got to break down and I got to get a Facebook page so I can see their pictures. But you know what? There's a common thread to these enhancements to our communication. They radically change and improve communication with someone who's very far away, right? The preference is always in person. The preference is always in person. Don't we love it when we actually get to see our missionaries and, and shake their hand and hug them, right? Missions moments and emails are great, but face-to-face -face contact between human beings, so much better. It's inherently richer and better than any kind of mediated contact, email, Facebook, whatever the case may be. Otherwise, again, why would God the Father have sent Jesus, God in the flesh? Why didn't he just send us a text message or a video? Hmm? In eternity, when we live together forever with Christ, all of us will experience what we were created for. Think about this. This is a neat thing to think about. We were created for unmediated, direct, face-to-face -face contact with our great God. We see this in the promise of 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. -face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Mediation is a necessity in this sinful, fallen world that we live in. But it's only a concession that was made necessary by the fall. It's only the next best thing to being there. It's not the same as being there. Adam and Eve had face-to-face -face unbroken fellowship with God in the garden, didn't they? And after they sinned, what did they do? They had to hide from him. And from then on, we needed a mediator. People like Abraham and Moses and then the great and final mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ himself. So in our interpersonal relationships, 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ, should we prefer the ease and the convenience of mediated communication through texting or email or Facebook or whatever? Or should we, as we are admonished in Hebrews 10, not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see a approaching. One study showed that 57% of young women spend more time talking to people online than in person. There was a study from the University of Stanford that found for every hour that we spend on our computers, traditional face-to-face interaction falls by nearly 30 minutes. We see that again. Studies also now show that many young people are actually losing their ability to relate to one another in an offline context. These days, real-world communication feels more threatening. It feels less natural, less normal than just typing a text message. It's not unusual. How many of you have seen this, to see two girls sitting in the same room just a few feet from each other texting each other rather than saying, hey, getting up and walking toward each other and looking at each other face-to-face and having an actual conversation? So again, there's nothing wrong with texting. I do it. Many of you text me, and sometimes I text you back. There's nothing inherently wrong with social media. There's nothing inherently wrong with email. But it should be an enhancement to our interpersonal face-to-face communication. When that's possible, it should never be a substitute. Just because it's easier, just because it's more convenient, just because maybe it's less threatening. And, uh, you know, I think the uh, digital media maybe has turned us all into cowards. Boy, it's easier to, I'm just going to send them an email, (laughs) you know. I've I've had that thought, folks. When, it, when something was difficult to communicate, I think I'll just send them an email. It'll be easier. Did you ever stop to think that the fact that it isn't easy sometimes to talk to face-to-face is the very reason we should do it? You think about that? Online, for example, we can pick our friends, and we can pick those to whom we relate. But in church, God throws us all together into one place, right, with a variety of people, and honestly, Some of the people that God throws into church with us are not people we would ordinarily choose to relate with on our own, right? We don't choose our brothers and sisters. God chooses our brothers and sisters. And sometimes, oftentimes, those people are not terribly compatible with us, not the people we would choose to hang out with. But it is this very incompatibility that is so important for at least two reasons. First, learning to love the people I don't like is by far the best way to learn how to love because it's easy to love people I happen to like. We are to worship with one another and love one another on the basis of our common humanity and on the basis of our shared kinship in the family of God rather than on the basis of preference or perceived compatibility. So let this be a challenge to us this morning, folks. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves as we ask some of these hard questions of ourselves and about our use of modern technology. Facebook, texting, YouTube, whatever the case may be, especially the digital tech that's so much a part of our everyday lives. Let's guard our hearts against making any of these kinds of things an idol in any way, taking the place of God in our lives. Do you own a smartphone or does it own you? I think that's a good question to ask. Let's consider how these things might distract us from a deep and rich relationship with the King of Kings. And let's also consider how much richer our face-to-face relationships are 
with one another and never substitute our online relationships, our digital relationships, for those with whom God has placed us in fellowship. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful tools you've given us. We thank you, Father, that you give us creativity that enables us to uh, create technologies that enhance and truly improve our lives in so many ways. But, Father, we realize that our hearts are idle factories. We realize how easily we are distracted, Lord God. And so, Father, as we consider these things about our digital technology especially, help us to not be people of the beep. Help us to not jump when we're distracted by our technology, Father, but focus on what you have for us, Lord God. May your Holy Spirit speak to us in these arenas, Father God. It's different for each of us, Lord. We recognize that. And we recognize there are many here for whom these challenges are not really an issue. But we also know that there are some for whom they either are or can be or may be in the future, Lord. So we pray that our hearts would be soft towards you. And your Holy Spirit would help us to continually probe and ask critical questions about the things we use in our daily lives, the technologies, and how they change our personalities, they change our priorities, Father God, and they change the way we relate to one another and even sometimes the way we relate to you. We thank you for these things, Father, and ask that your spirit would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.